Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. Arlene Fraser was at home in the Scottish suburb of New Elgin one night in early April 1998. From her living room, she noticed something flickering in the darkness outside. Curiosity got the better of her, and Arlene glanced out of the window to see that her car was engulfed in flames. The fire service was alerted and the blaze was extinguished. The cause was attributed to a mechanical fault. However, Arlene was doubtful. The relationship with her husband had turned violent. He had attacked Arlene the previous month. She suspected he may have been responsible for the fire, and things took an even darker turn two weeks later, when Arlene Fraser seemingly vanished into thin air. The only conclusion uh, is still left open to us, which I firmly believe has happened, is that something criminal has taken place. You can't say the person was stabbed to death or was strangled or whatever because there's no body, no medical evidence to prove that. But there is no reason in law why a conviction can't follow uh, without there being a body there. Every time I hear those words on, on the radio or on the television, remains have been found, you know, at a stop, and I think, could it be Arling? Welcome to Season 7, Episode 53 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a three-part case. The second instalment will be available in three days. Elgin in Scotland 
location rich in history with a population of approximately 24,000 people is famous for its Kashmir weavers, a stunning cathedral, scenic hikes and whiskey distilleries. The town was the place Isabel Thompson and Hector McInnes called home. They welcomed a healthy baby girl on August 18, 1964. Arlene was the couple's second child. Her sister Carol had been born several years earlier. No one knew when Arlene was small that she would reside in Elgin for her entire life. Bar a short period in the 60s when Hector's job as a Navy aircraft mechanic uprooted the family to the sunny climes of Malta. When that stint was over, Isabel and Hector returned to raise the girls in Scotland. Sadly, the couple's relationship dissolved when Arlene was around five and Hector's job would take him to Cornwall, almost 700 miles away. In her early years, Arlene, with her fair hair, large brown eyes and big open smile, was often referred to as a tomboy. She had a rebellious streak. Arlene was also said to be disorganised and messy, which frustrated her older sister with whom she shared a room. The two were prone to normal sibling spats, and the girls were considered opposites. They remained in touch with their father despite the distance between them, and frequently spent summer with him in Cornwall. Time changed Arlene's tastes. During her teens, her interests evolved from horse riding to a love of clothes, makeup, and boys. Her dislike for school saw her leave at 16 without any further qualifications before she successfully applied for a steady job working in a booty clothing shop in town. Prior to that, to make some extra money, she was employed in a variety of roles at fast food outlets and even a bar. Life at that point was not without its challenges. Arlene had a lifelong inflammatory bowel condition which required medication. Crohn's disease has many possible symptoms, including stomach aches, cramps, fatigue and unintentional weight loss. She was barely into her twenties in 1985 when Arlene met the co-owner of a wholesale fruit and veg business the 26-year-old known about town for playing guitar in a popular local band called the Minesweepers. Nat Fraser, the new man in Arlene's life, at first appeared to be enamoured by his new girlfriend, and on May 9th, 1987, the couple were married in a beautiful church in Elkin Town. As she always had done, Arlene had taken great care of her appearance, even more so on her wedding day. She wore a short-sleeved dress with a lace ruffle that wrapped around her shoulders. A veil trailed down her back. She pulled up to the church in a classic white car to be met by a groom who looked the part in his kilt and black jacket. However, on closer inspection, Nat was more than a little worse for wear, 
after choosing to have his stag night the evening before and being bruised from a scuffle. The day seemed to go off without a hitch. The newlyweds were photographed smiling as they were about to cut their three-tier square wedding cake. Nat's best friends Hector, Dick, Andy and Taylor were among the guests, and the night came to an end with Nat playing with his band. That said, not everyone was happy with the wedding. Arlene's mother, Isabel, had some reservations about her daughter's choice of partner. Nat Fraser's reputation for playing the field had found its way back to Arlene's family. The rumours were confirmed by an incident that occurred just a couple of weeks before the wedding. Arlene had returned to her mother's home upset that she had caught her fiancé on the telephone with another woman. Arlene's family did not seem surprised, and her loved ones, including her sister Carol, urged Arlene to reconsider the upcoming nuptials, but Nat's actions did not seem enough for Arlene to cancel the lavish wedding. Initially, Nat seemed nice enough in person, and Arlene was an adult. The pair had chosen to marry one another, which was a decision her family would have to accept. The couple lived in a one-story but spacious property, Number 2 Smith Street in New Elgin. Their romance had progressed quickly. Arlene had moved into the bungalow after just four months of dating Nat. Smith Street was perfect for the Frasers due to its convenient proximity to New Elgin Primary School, just a two-minute walk away. It was just as well because not long after the couple were married, three months in fact, they were joined by their first child, a baby boy who they named Jamie. Five years later in 1992, a little girl called Natalie completed the family. Arlene's loved ones were somewhat apprehensive about what sort of mother she would be due to how rebellious she was in her youth. It turned out they had nothing to worry about. She took to motherhood like a duck to water. Nat continued working as a partner in a local fruit and veg wholesaler while Arlene was a stay-at-home mother. In time, she took to childminding during the summer months, and Nat gave Arlene an allowance of £100 a week. She tried her best to raise her children in a happy home, but there were problems with Arlene's marriage. Nat would claim when Jamie was seven months old... Arlene had an affair with a teenager working as a delivery driver for her husband's business. However, it would subsequently be revealed that it was Nat Fraser who was the unfaithful one in the relationship. His hobby playing with the minesweepers and his job delivering produce to numerous shops and businesses meant he was often away from home and he partook in extramarital affairs. Arlene was thought of as a quiet and shy woman who was not inclined to discuss the inner workings of her marriage with others, 
not even her family who she was close to. After the incident just before the wedding, they were no longer privy to the goings-on in the Fraser household. Since her children were born and she married Nat, Arlene had lost touch with many of her friends. She was not as interested in nights on the town as she once was. When she did go out before her first child, Jamie, was born, her husband would follow her or become increasingly violent when Arlene got home. On one occasion, she gathered the courage to leave, seeking support from a women's refuge. Though, as is common when first attempting to leave an abusive relationship, this was not the end of the marriage. Arlene was convinced to return after being bombarded with a flurry of apologies and gifts from Nat. The couple's daughter was born, and the Fraser's dysfunctional relationship continued, prompting Arlene to intermittently contact a solicitor. Breaking away from Nat was proving difficult, as with every small step to pull away from him, he would lure her back either through charm or fear. One thing was evident to the people who knew her. Arlene was dedicated to her children. She was exceptionally kind and giving. His generosity also extended to material possessions. She ensured the children wanted for nothing. She spent her weekends helping them pursue their interests and hobbies. Jamie liked swimming, and Natalie participated in acting and dance classes. The walls in the carefully decorated Fraser home were adorned with studio portraits of the two children. Nat Fraser was mostly absent from the family's outings. He only had one day off a week and spent most evenings out gigging at events with his band. From the outside in, the family of four were living a comfortable middle-class life. However, there was always turmoil behind closed doors. Nat was unfaithful, and Arlene missed the company of friends. She wanted to socialise more, but that's when her husband became physically violent when he felt he was losing control of his wife. In the spring of 1998, Arlene saw a solicitor about getting a divorce. In February of that year, Arlene's weight plummeted to a mere seven stone after Nat had violently assaulted her, damaging her jaw. Nat moved out of the family home, and Arlene was determined to turn a new page in her life. Arlene resolved to pursue self-improvement in the wake of the separation. Her ambitions led her to enrol in a two-year business studies course at Murray College, another step away from her marriage, and a big step towards personal growth. The usual morning routine had started on Tuesday, April 28, 1998. 
Arlene got up and prepared breakfast for Jamie and Natalie as they washed and dressed, getting ready for school. Arlene was seen by her neighbour Andrea Pinkerton around 8.15am when she went outside to the garden to check if the washing that was hanging on the line had dried. After breakfast, the children picked up their bags and set off to New Elkin Primary School. Their mother waved goodbye from the bungalow as they walked down the street. Arlene had still been in her dressing gown as she ushered them out of the door. That afternoon, Jamie was going on a trip to Inverness. It was a proud day for the ten-year-old. He had been specially selected to attend an anti-litter initiative representing the school. Around 9.40am, Arlene called the school to inquire when her son would be home. The secretary was unsure, but said she could find out and call her back when she knew. She returned Arlene's call around 30 minutes later, but the phone rang out at number 2 Smith Street. No one answered. That afternoon, Michelle Scott, Arlene's close friend whom she had known since childhood, was scheduled to come over for lunch. It was a Tuesday, which meant that Arlene did not have college that day. Arlene's usual routine on most Tuesdays involved meeting up with Michelle, and they would go shopping or have lunch together. This was a regular event, and something the friends looked forward to. Michelle arrived at Arlene's home around 11am, earlier than was arranged the night before. She was surprised to find the front door unlocked, despite Arlene being very cautious about keeping the property secure. Michelle decided to step inside, and she called out Arlene's name as she tentatively walked through the home. She noticed that Arlene's expensive watch, which had set her back £1,000, was in clear view, and so were her eyeglasses. In the kitchen, she noticed several drinking glasses on the countertop, which was uncharacteristic for Arlene, who had left behind her untidy childhood long ago. However, she was still known to have a habit of misplacing things or often putting things back in the wrong place. Michelle found some damp clothing inside the washing machine, a hairdryer lying on the floor, and the lids off Arlene's makeup. Had Arlene hurried out of the bungalow? No clothing had been taken, and there did not appear to be a struggle suggesting something more sinister. Michelle left the property shortly thereafter, closing the door behind her. She was early for their lunch date so she left for a while and returned at the arranged time of 1pm. Once more, the door was unlocked, and there was still no sign of Arlene anywhere. Not sure what to do, Michelle left a note to say she had popped in, but no one was home. Later in the afternoon, 
Arlene had a scheduled business meeting with a solicitor at her home. Lone Lennon arrived shortly after lunchtime and knocked on the front door, but received no response. A sudden rain shower forced her to take refuge in her car, where Lone sat for several moments while waiting for Arlene. She never appeared. After school, Natalie went to a friend's, while Jamie went on his school trip. At around 7.30pm, Jamie was dropped off at home. He found the front door unlocked. He entered the property expecting to see his mother and sister, but the home was eerily quiet. Jamie assumed his mother must have been caught up with something at college. He wrote her a note which read, I was home 7.30. You not in. I am over at Mark's. Where are you? Jamie then walked over to his friends, expecting his mother to come and pick him up whenever she got back home. Sometime later, Michelle Scott returned to Arlene's. After not hearing from her all day, she wanted to ensure Arlene was okay. Once more, Michelle found the property empty and Arlene was nowhere to be seen. After Michelle contacted several of Arlene's friends and learned that none of them had seen her either, Michelle reported Arlene Fraser missing. Officers from the Grampian Police Force arrived at Number 2 Smith Street and began examining the property, noting the same observations Michelle had already made. The findings inside the home indicated that Arlene was not planning on going anywhere, at least for an extended period of time. The washing was on. Arlene's makeup was laid out alongside her hairdryer, and most importantly, her medication for Crohn's disease was left behind. Arlene's mother, Isabel, later remarked, It's as though she popped out to the shops and didn't come back. A sister Carol added, The place was just like the Mary Celeste, and you walk into the house. It's as if Arlene is still there. With no sign of Arlene Fraser, the search got underway fast but with each passing minute the situation grew increasingly dire. Tracker dogs were brought in and intensely sniffed around Smith Street and its surrounds, covering a half-mile radius. Video footage was recorded in the bungalow the next day. Naturally, in such events, the partner or ex-partner is interviewed first, and Nat Fraser was no exception. He spoke with Detective Sergeant William Robertson the day after Arlene went missing. The interview lasted for around six hours. Nat told the officer about his fears that Arlene was involved with another man when he said, Somebody gave me a whisper. I cannot recall who it was. That Arlene was seeing a man. I did ask her if she was having a carry-on with another man, 
and she just told me no and not to be so stupid, but it just festered in my head and kept gnawing at me. That Fraser claimed the other person was a local man who worked in a furniture shop. He continued, I did ask myself, was it really happening? Was she clever or was I imagining things? The problem was I never got a satisfactory answer or conclusion in my own mind that she was not seeing anyone else. Nat contended that violence in the marriage was not one-sided. He offered his account of the period when Arlene left home to live with her parents briefly after she heard her fiancé talking on the telephone with another woman. He stated... About two to three weeks before we were married, Arlene broke a mirror tile over my head after overhearing a phone call I'd received from a female. She thought I was maybe going to meet this girl and she never gave me a chance to explain. That sort of set the tone for our relationship. It was up and down. Arlene Fraser's description was released to the public along with her photograph, but the police explained that they were uncertain what the 33-year-old was wearing on the day she vanished. Arlene stood five feet four inches tall with a slim build and long, light brown hair. After she was missing for three days, further efforts were made to track her down. In announcing the development, an officer from the Grampian police also stated that they were baffled about Arlene's disappearance. Detective Chief Inspector Peter Simpson, who was tasked with leading the investigation, remarked, There's nothing to indicate we should be searching in any particular area. We will just have to cover everywhere to make sure she isn't lying injured nearby. It may be for some medical reason she has left home and not made it to her destination. Aberdeen search and rescue teams combed the forested areas and farmland just out of town as helicopters flew overhead. Gardens, outbuildings and wastelands were explored, but the officers' efforts were fruitless. Chief Inspector Laurie Stewart informed the public that the last time Arlene was seen was when she waved Jamie and Natalie off to school on Tuesday morning. The officer said, To the best of our knowledge, she has not been seen since. It is totally out of character, and her family are all desperately worried. We would urge her to contact us. As they looked into Nat Fraser, it was confirmed that his alibi checked out. However, to officers, the circumstances seemed contrived. The person Nat was talking to, Hazel Walker, was having problems with her marriage, when by chance she met Nat at one of his minesweeper gigs held at the Grant Arms Hotel. This was not long before Arlene disappeared. Hazel attended to support her uncle, who also played in the band. By the end of the night, the charismatic Nat Fraser had convinced Hazel to give him her number. She would subsequently admit that this was only because she had had too much to drink. 
Over the following week, Nat rang Hazel every day while her husband was out of the house at work. However, the relationship never developed into a physical affair. When the pair spoke on April 27th, Nat made a strange request. He asked Hazel if he could call her again the following morning. She said he could, and that's when Nat was recorded by CCTV camera in a phone box on the morning his estranged wife went missing. After that, Hazel Walker never received a telephone call from Nat again. There were two possibilities. Either she had been used for a carefully orchestrated alibi, or Nat Fraser was too preoccupied with finding his wife to keep in touch. A team of 40 Grampian police CID and forensic officers were drafted in to assist in the search. They set up an incident room in Elgin and began conducting door-to-door inquiries to establish whether anybody had seen or heard anything suspicious. In addition to this, the forensic officers combed the family home inch by inch, but failed to turn up any clues. Chief Inspector Stewart said, We are becoming increasingly concerned. Arlene went missing without making any provision for the care of her two children, which suggests this was not planned. The officer went on to say that the entire family were desperately worried for Arlene's well-being. The police appealed to the public for information, and a tip came in from a local woman who was sure she had seen Arlene in school Bray earlier in the morning before she waved the children off to school. This was around a mile and a half southeast of Arlene's home. Curiously, this potential witness said that Arlene was fully dressed, but according to neighbours and Jamie and Natalie, Arlene was wearing her dressing gown that morning as she waved from the doorstep. This tip was quickly ruled out when a woman who looked remarkably similar to Arlene came forward and identified herself as the woman seen in school Bray. In addition to appealing for information, the police also sought volunteers to help search for Arlene. Hundreds of members of the community came forward to assist in the search, scouring through gardens, fields and woodland, but no one could find any trace of Arlene. Both Arlene's mother and father had since remarried following their divorce decades earlier, but they came together to help with the investigation and support the children. Hector McInnes and his new wife Catherine travelled to Elgin to be close to their grandchildren, and along with Arlene's sister Carol, Arlene's mother Isabel and Isabel's new husband temporarily moved into Arlene's home to take care of Jamie and Natalie. Early on in the investigation, Isabel said of the young siblings, We've shielded the children as much as we can. They know their mum is missing but don't fully understand the seriousness of the situation and the fact they may not see her again. Natalie is asking for her mum. 
We have told her Arlene is not very well and had to go away. Jamie is like his mum. He's very deep and has not said anything. He's not asked when she's coming back. You don't know what he's thinking. He wouldn't be one to show his feelings. Hector and Catherine, who had been visiting the family, later recalled that Nat Fraser did not seem concerned about his estranged wife. He only appeared slightly agitated at one point when he was discussing money, just over a week after Arlene had disappeared without a trace. Arlene's father mentioned that his son-in-law made a comment while chatting in the kitchen of the bungalow to the effect that the children would soon forget their mother anyway. Unsettled by this remark, Hector composed himself and left the room. There was also another puzzling element to the case that occurred around the same time. In those early days of the investigation... Officers would be in and out of the home, asking questions and searching for evidence. In the already pristine and tidy property, no items of jewellery were of interest. That changed when 11 days after Arlene went missing, Hector's partner Catherine discovered three rings when washing her hands, placed under a soap dish in the bathroom. The sapphire and diamond gold rings were threaded onto a slim wooden stick. Catherine had been in the room numerous times. She was confident the bands, which turned out to be Arlene's engagement, wedding and eternity rings, were not there before. Catherine felt as though if she had previously seen them, she would have put them amongst Arlene's personal items like her passport and eyeglasses that were passed to the police. Arlene was known to always wear a matching diamond necklace with the rings as they were a set, but some friends explained that she had stopped wearing the rings when she and Nat separated. It turned out Catherine was right. A video had been shot of the entire house the day after Arlene vanished. The footage, which included the bathroom, showed there were no rings stored under the soap dish. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with Scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Naturally, the police wanted to speak to Nat Fraser in more depth. They knew that the couple had recently separated but there was an extremely sinister element to their breakup. On Saturday, March 21st, 1998, around five weeks before she disappeared, Arlene had gone out for the evening with three friends. She had already informed Nat of her plans. As part of the separation, Saturday would be her evenings to go out so Nat stayed at home with the children. After the pubs had closed, the women returned to Michelle Scott's home, but convinced that Arlene was seeing someone, Nat travelled to Michelle's and watched the property from afar. He noticed a black car parked nearby and was certain this vehicle belonged to Arlene's supposed lover. It was around 5.30am on Mother's Day when Arlene returned home. When she walked through the door, she went into the bathroom. 
that followed her and an argument ensued. It culminated in violence. Nat grabbed Arlene around the throat and compressed it, leaving her unable to breathe. As a result of the attack, Arlene passed out, falling to the floor of the bathroom before she was physically able to call for help. While coming to, she remembered being in the living room with Nat standing above her. He was trying to convince her that she had in fact been the one to attack him, and in the process she had a fit and blacked out. Nat eventually left the house, and although Arlene was still injured, she managed to visit a GP. Doctors found bruising to Arlene's left shoulder, upper chest, left arm and back, as well as hemorrhaging to her eyes and eyelids, which is a common feature in strangulation. Nat told the police that he had his hands around Arlene's throat for between five to eight seconds, but according to a forensic medical expert, they believe the throttling went on for much longer. Nat Fraser was charged with attempted murder and was released on bail. As part of his conditions, he needed to move in with his business partner Ian Taylor, known as Pedro, on Burnside Road located in the nearby town of Lanbride. In addition to the attempted murder charge, Nat was facing an assault charge for an attack on Arlene that occurred sometime between January 23rd and February 1st of the same year. During this incident, Nat repeatedly punched Arlene, pulled her hair and kicked her. This was the occasion when he had severely injured his wife's jaw. The marriage had been peppered by similar violent assaults, and Arlene had first consulted a solicitor in 1990 to discuss divorce. She decided not to proceed with any court action, mainly because she was concerned about what would happen to the children. Arlene consulted a solicitor three more times in the lead-up to 1998, but each time she changed her mind. That was until the attempted murder incident when she knew she needed to leave Nat once and for all. This time when she spoke with the solicitor, she argued that she needed Nat excluded from the home and banned from approaching her. Two weeks before her disappearance, the family's Toyota parked outside the front of her home burst into flames. She was at first told it was due to an electrical fault. However, instinctively, Arlene knew this was not the case. The car had been a bone of contention within the separation, another item that afforded Arlene some freedom, freedom that Nat could not accept. In the days leading up to Arlene's disappearance, she had been consulting with a solicitor to begin divorce proceedings. She told friends and family she wanted £250,000 as part of the separation, which would have been a major share of the family's fortune, which Nat Fraser believed was his. 
Arlene's sister Carol said Nat tried to appease her sister by offering a fifth of what she asked, £50,000. This was declined. The settlement would have effectively killed off his wholesale produce business. When Nat Fraser was brought in for questioning after Arlene vanished, he told the police that he was at work on the morning Arlene disappeared. He said he had been out from just after 7am delivering fruit and vegetables to local businesses. Unusually, that morning he was accompanied by Grant Fraser, a young employee who was not related to his colleague. Grant had begun his shift loading the lorry before he visited a number of local businesses accompanied by Nat Fraser, someone he had known for most of his life. Several hours later, Nat took a quick break to make a telephone call. The call was made from a public phone box in the middle of town, covered by a CCTV camera. Nat made the call to Hazel Walker while Grant waited in the van marked Taylor and Fraser Fruit and Vegetables. Although they had their suspicions, the police seemed satisfied with Nat Fraser's alibi. As the days passed, there was still no news about Arlene's whereabouts, and nobody had any idea where she could have gone. Staff at airports and ferry terminals were told to keep an eye open for the missing woman, and the community came together to aid in the search efforts, spreading out throughout New Elgin in every direction. Officers occupied the town centre, conversing with shoppers and commuters, hoping to find that one person that had seen Arlene since she went missing. Chief Inspector Laurie Stewart said the appeal was time to coincide with the time of day Arlene was last seen. The officer said, We want to jog someone's memory, perhaps someone who makes a weekly trip to Elgin or goes to work at roughly the same time every day. Due to the surrounding area of New Elgin being comprised of vast fields and dense woods, Three mountain rescue teams and an RAF helicopter were called upon to aid in the search. There was some speculation that Arlene could have left of her own volition, but this was something her parents and sister dismissed. They publicly pleaded for information on May 2nd, begging for Arlene to get in touch if she was out there. Her mother Isabel said, We are all dreadfully upset and puzzled. We obviously want her back. Her children are desperate to hear from her. Arlene's father Hector explained that the family were utterly baffled by her disappearance. It had been May bank holiday weekend, and investigators knew that many people were away or not participating in their usual routines. Therefore, they were unaware of the news that a local had disappeared. There was also some suggestion that Arlene had a secret boyfriend, but her family refuted this theory. 
Isabel voiced her opinion that if Arlene had run off to be with a man, she would have taken her makeup. According to her mother, appearances were important to Arlene. Arlene's sister Carol agreed, telling the media, The only man she ever talked about was Nat. I don't think she went with another man. She's not like that. She didn't have a lot of confidence in herself. She didn't even think she was that attractive. Since Arlene's disappearance, her children Jamie and Natalie were being cared for by their grandmother Isabel and their aunt Carol in Hamilton. Although Jamie was aware that his mother was missing, Natalie, being too young at five years old to comprehend the situation entirely, repeatedly inquired about her mother's whereabouts. Police divers were called in to scour through the waters at River Lossy towards the southeast of Elgin. British transport police officers were also directed to check railway lines in the area. On May 3rd, Arlene's father led a group of 300 volunteers in a search for his missing daughter. A call to action had been printed in the local newspaper for people aged 16 and above to join the hunt. The instructions were to meet at the Elgin Community Centre at 9am. Starting in Elgin, they expanded their search radius in hopes of uncovering any clues that could lead them to her whereabouts. The public response to the call for volunteers was overwhelming, as fleets of buses were brought in to ferry volunteers around. Meanwhile, Arlene's sister spoke with the media to highlight the family's grief. Carol stated, We have had no sleep. It's very worrying. We have got to get to the bottom of this. If Arlene is out there and has seen all this, and it's putting her off getting in touch, or if she's worried about the enormity of it, don't worry. Carol mentioned Arlene and Nat's recent breakup. She said that Arlene had been under some stress as a result, but appeared to be coping well nevertheless. Carol added, Problems can be sorted. Let us know you're alive. That's all we want to know. She can stay away. She doesn't need to come back if she doesn't want. But get in touch. By May 5th, officers searching for Arlene wondered if they needed to take a different approach. It had been a week since she was last seen, and they had not uncovered one clue to assist in their search. Officers travelled to New Elgin Primary School where Jamie and Natalie were enrolled. In tandem, other officers took to the streets of Elgin and stationed themselves at the bus and railway station. There they stopped members of the public and asked them whether they knew Arlene, and if so, had they seen her over the past week. Trying to refresh everyone's memory about Arlene Fraser. She's been missing since last Tuesday. Do you know Arlene? Did you see her last Tuesday or have you seen her since? 
No. Uh, we're trying to, to trace where she is. Does anybody know her at all? I'll give you a look at her picture. Has anybody seen seen anybody they think looks uh, similar to her travelling on any of the buses? If you travel regularly on any of the buses, you know, and you think you've you've maybe seen her, you could get in contact with us. Or if you think you've seen her going about anywhere else, you'd just like to get in contact with us and we can take things from there. Okay. As the search for Arlene continued, it was then the police made the public aware of the suspicious incident that happened around two weeks before Arlene disappeared when the family's Toyota parked on the driveway outside her home burst into flames. A proper investigation had finally been carried out to ascertain the cause of the fire. And suspected it was not a fault. Somebody had set the driver's seat alight. Frustratingly, there was no evidence to prove who started it. By May 14th, just over two weeks since Arlene Fraser disappeared, the authorities confirmed they were almost certain they were no longer looking for a missing person. While the investigators had not uncovered any direct evidence that pointed to a crime, due to the passage of time, they concluded that something sinister had occurred. Arlene did not have her passport, and had not used her bank account since she went missing. Arlene had poor vision and required spectacles or contact lenses. Both of these items had been left at the home when she disappeared, and more importantly, so had her Crohn's medication. After intensive investigations within government and medical logs in both Scotland and England, the conclusion was reached that Arlene had never collected any further prescriptions for her eyesight and health condition. Detective Chief Inspector Simpson said, It is my personal belief that Arlene has been abducted or murdered. The officer also added that he believed that something, quote, criminal, happened to Arlene at her home between 8.45am and 11am. He stated, I cannot be 100% certain that we are looking for a body, but I have real fears about that. After 15 days with no contact, we do not really expect her to just show up. As the investigation shifted focus, Arlene's mother applied for interim custody of Jamie and Natalie. She denied that the legal bid had any bearing on Nat Fraser and said, Both Jamie and Natalie have had regular contact with their father since he and Arlene separated. But he has work, so we feel it would be best if they stay here until we know where Arlene is. Isabel revealed that although the police believed something sinister had happened to Arlene, the family were trying to remain positive. Arlene's mother remarked, One just could not comprehend how a child would feel if they were told that their mother might not be coming back. While Nat Fraser had remained out of the public eye since Arlene vanished, he still embarked on a custody battle for his children. 
before the end of the month, Isabel gave up and handed Jamie and Natalie over to their paternal grandparents, Nathaniel and Ibby, who would take care of them at the home the children had lived in all their lives on Smith Street, while Nat continued to work. Since Nat had an outstanding attempted murder charge, he could not live at the same address as his children, but could visit them. Isabel said that the family had made the difficult decision to avoid Jamie and Natalie being dragged to court after Nat made it clear he wanted custody. She said, We are only interested in doing our best for the children and to try and shield them at this very difficult time. They are both missing their mother very much and Natalie keeps asking when she will be coming home. Arlene's sister Carol also remarked, There was no need for it to come to this. We only wanted to give them a stable life. Unfortunately, solicitors were brought in and it got very dirty, but it has been blown out of all proportion. We didn't want a battle with him in the papers. We thought we were doing what was best for the children. We wanted to take them away give them a good time and try and distract them. In early June 1998, Nat Fraser made his first statement in public following his wife's disappearance. Because of the attempted murder charge against him, the Grampian police needed to obtain permission from the Crown to allow him to speak and be photographed. Dressed in a black suit, he stood solemnly in front of cameras at Murray College Lecture Theatre. Prior to the conference, it was made clear that Nat would not address any questions concerning his attempted murder charge, and he was not asked about it. Instead, he was repeatedly questioned about his knowledge of his wife's whereabouts, to which he constantly replied, No idea. Nat Fraser was asked how his wife's disappearance had affected him and the family. Obviously, greatly affected. As for the children, greatly affected. Try to keep them shielded. But my wee lad is 10. So he knows, he knows there's something. Nat stated that he was at work on the day Arlene vanished and had witnesses to support his claim. These alibis had been corroborated by the police. He maintained that the last time he saw Arlene was around a week before she vanished, and said they spoke about the children. He turned to the cameras and pleaded to Arlene if she could hear him. Arlene, if you're watching this, then please get in touch, just to let us all know that you're safe and well. The children are missing you terribly. Nat said he believed Arlene was still alive, but feared something terrible had happened to her. During the press conference, Nat also announced a £20,000 reward for information to help solve the mystery of Arlene's disappearance. He said that he put up £10,000 while the other £10,000 had come from Arlene's family. 
Detective Chief Inspector Peter Simpson also addressed the media. The detective revealed that he volunteered to appear in a reconstruction of Arlene's disappearance for Crime Watch. Well, speaking in the region of uh, a total of £20,000 is being offered, uh, and hopefully that would spur someone uh, who up until now has been reluctant to give us any information. Hopefully that would spur them into coming forward and giving us the lead that we need. It was hoped the announcement of the reward would entice people with information to come out of the woodwork. However, it failed to generate any new tips. Toward the end of June, the Grampian police scaled down the search for Arlene Fraser. The family had all but given up hope that Arlene would be found alive, with her father Hector telling the citizen, It has dawned on me today that the likelihood of me seeing her again is diminishing by the hour. I am 80% certain she is dead and the other 20% is just a hope that she may survive. There is just no explanation for what has happened. She just would not leave and not tell anyone. Hector shared his belief that Arlene's disappearance was somehow connected to the mysterious arson attack on her car in the weeks before she vanished. Arlene's sister echoed her father's sentiments, affirming that every single waking thought consuming her mind was fixated on her beloved sibling. As day gave way to night, she found herself besieged by horrific nightmares of Arlene, unable to shake the haunting images that lingered in her mind. The family had hoped that if Arlene was still alive and well, she would return for Natalie's sixth birthday on August 5th. That occasion marked 100 days since Arlene Fraser had been missing. The family of a young mother who disappeared without trace exactly 100 days ago were dealt a fresh blow today when she failed to get in touch on her daughter's sixth birthday. Arlene Fraser has now been missing from her new Elgin home for three and a half months. Natalie, Arlene's daughter, turned six today, but there was no hug or card or phone call from her mum to wish her a happy birthday. Police admit they are a little closer to solving the mystery of the bizarre disappearance. Though they've scaled down the inquiry, they stress they're still working on the case. I am satisfied that we as a police service have done absolutely everything we possibly can on this inquiry. We still continue to do so. Again, the word mystery has been used and it's a word that I would apply to this particular case. It is a mystery. This is the end of episode 53. The second instalment in this three-part case will be available in three days. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.